Judges 7, 1 through 22. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, and shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. That night, that same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Parah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Parah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And, man, and every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. This is the word of the Lord. See, that didn't take close to a half hour. Excellent work. Thank you, Miller, for reading uh, the scripture for us. Uh, if you have been visiting or coming along to Redeemer over the last few months, we know that we have been spending some time going through uh, a kind of an assorted group of stories um, from the, the beginning of the Bible, the, the, the first parts of the Bible, stories that uh, are known to many of us, maybe new to some, and uh, stories that have been, you know, kind of tested over time. Stories that have an ability to surprise us if we're willing to listen. 
But going through these stories is tough work. Going through these stories is, is, not, uh, is not easy because these stories don't work the way that the stories we expect them to work. They have, you know, they're written thousands of years ago. They were written with entirely different literary uh, techniques. Or stories that were written to people who lived in a time and a place that was very, very different from our own. But I think the hardest part about understanding these stories, and I think the hardest part about understanding Scripture as a whole, is that they represent to us just how differently God works in the world than we expect Him to. Just how differently God shows up than the way we would have written the plan. And this story is no exception. You heard, if you followed along at all with, as Miller read the story, you hear that this is a story with incredible odds. The 300 to uh, the sand on the seashore. How many is that, right? A a story of 300 against a, a countless horde of oppressors that they are fighting against. And if you or I were writing that story, we would want a a very particular sort of leader to lead us into the fray. But I don't think we would want somebody like we see here in Gideon. I think what we would want is somebody who's like Leonidas. And if you happen to not be a Greco-Persian war of the first century BC expert, let me remind you of who King Leonidas of Sparta was. He's the guy in, in the movie 300 who, like, kicked a dude into a well. Do you remember that? Uh, you have to be kind of old because this movie is, like, 20 years old. Uh, but, but the Spartans, you probably remember, right? They were this Greek uh, city-state, a, 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 a city-state that was known for their power, uh, a city-state that was known for their military, a city-state that was known for their control, and King Leonidas was the, the Spartan among Spartans. He was, the, he was the one who from birth excelled in, in all things control, all things capability. What we know of the Spartans is even from infancy. Upon their birth, they were assessed for their, their strength of their, their bodies. They were exposed to a test to see how they would respond as infants. Those who were deformed, those who, who were, uh, those who were not healthy, many of them were discarded. The ones who seemed frightful or skittish, they were put into the slave class. But those who seemed strong, those who seemed capable, they went into, into the path uh, of becoming a Spartan warrior. When Leonidas was seven years old, he would have been pulled from his family's home to begin his, his formal training. At 12, he would have been set loose in, into the wilderness with nothing but a spear and a blanket to fend for himself for a month. And if you survived, if you came back in one piece, then you proved that you were worthy of, of future training. And what's said about King Leonidas is is that he was so good at these obstacles. He was so powerful in his presence that that the legend went around that he was actually a descendant of Hercules, right? That's who King Leonidas was. So when they made the movie 300, they, they, you know, they they gave this guy like a a 32-pack, not a six-pack on his abs, right? Like he he was a beast. He was a warrior. He was ferocious, 
Like he may not be the kind of guy you want your daughter to bring home at Christmas, but if you're going to have somebody who has to fight with 300 soldiers against a million, he's your guy. And you and I, when we see something like what the Spartans saw, when we see something like what Gideon saw in front of him, he's who we want. The one who's strong, the one who's resourceful, the one who's resolved, the one who's capable. But what if our values aren't God's values? What about if God is at work in a a very different sort of way? What I want to propose to us this morning is is that our uh, desire for somebody like Leonidas, our our proclivity towards choosing the one who is strong, the one who is capable, is not just uh, an accident. It's not just logic. I think it is a a, a sort of, of distorted sickness that's in all of us. In fact, I'm going to call it Leonidas syndrome. And yes, I just made that up just now. But what this is, is it is a desire. It is a belief that is ingrained in our assumptions that God uses those who are capable, that the world is is transformed by those who are competent, that our lives will be made better if we could be just a little bit more like Leonidas. God, when he comes to Gideon, he says there's, there's this operating problem, and it's not this vast Midianite army. It's that if you go into the, if you leave this battle thinking that you are capable, if you leave this battle thinking that you are competent, if you leave this battle thinking that you are in control. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a few minutes to dream, to dream what it would be like if we didn't have this assumption in our bodies, this, this proclivity towards capability. If we didn't have a desire in us that we could be strong, if we didn't have a desire in us to control our circumstances, what would be different about us? I want to propose in this story, we see four different things in the life of Gideon. I think we would be free, free to show up, that we would be free to lose control of our resources, that we'd be free to be afraid, and that we'd be free to be comforted. Some of you are scared because I just gave you four points, but so let's, let's get humming here. Let's move through these. The first, that we'd be free to show up. When God comes to Gideon, he comes to a man who lives in occupied territory. The Midianites had had occupied the entire land of Israel, separating clan from clan, tribe from tribe. Gideon lived in a world where soldiers patrolled the streets and, and, and where soldiers could take your food that you harvested from you at any minute. Gideon grew up not like Leonidas, Leonidas with, uh, uh, with training. He didn't grow up with a, an army. Gideonite was alone, and and Gideon was scared. You see, one of the things we see first when we come to Gideon is that the the call of God is very, very high because God comes to Gideon who has no army, who has no training, who has no strength, and he says this in the the chapter before what we read. He said, "'Go in in your own might and save Israel from the hand of Midian.'" Do I not send you? 
And we see uh, if you're Gideon, right? If you picture yourself being Gideon, you go, um, how am I supposed to do that, <laughs> right? Like the call of God on Gideon's life is very, very high. But it's not just that the call on his life was very, very high, but his capacity, right? His capability was very, very low. This was Gideon's immediate response to God. He said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. You get what he's saying? He's that, he said, I'm from the, like, the weakest tribe, and I'm in the weakest clan, and I'm in the weakest family of that clan, and I'm the weakest member of the family of my clan. Like, God, this, this gulf, this, this separation between what you're asking me to do, what you're calling me to do, and, and who I am, my skills, my abilities, my strength, my capability, is too big. It's too great. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are a person who uh, endeavors to follow after Jesus, you're going to find a very similar dynamic, right? Because most of us in this room, you're sitting here and you're, you're hearing about Leonidas and you're like, yeah, that's not me, right? I get anxious if I have to like dial somebody's phone number and call them on the phone, right? Like I get anxious as soon as I open the phone app on my phone. I don't think I'm too worried about saving myself or, or thinking that I'm in control. We know that we're not, right? In fact, I would guess that, that a great many of us who, who seem to be confident and, and who seem to function highly in the world suffer from what, what you, we call imposter syndrome. That while in the outer world you seem to be doing well and you seem to be thriving inwardly, you feel like a fraud, you feel like you're pretending. You feel like your world is about to fall apart at any second. And those are the high achievers of us. The rest of us, well, there's a reason that a book called On Getting Out of Bed is appealing to us. Because we know what it's like to feel so overwhelmed with life so overwhelmed with the burden of living in this earth that we don't even know if we can get out of bed, much less conquer the Midianite army. Our capacity, our capability is very, very low, but we too have a calling that is, is very, very high. If you've read the Bible, you know that the, what God calls his children to is extraordinary to take up the cause of the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, right? Those are pretty simple solutions to come to. To feed the hungry and shelter the vulnerable. To love the people in our society who you believe are, are wreaking havoc and harming it. To forgive those who have done you wrong. To move into a, 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 a city in a, in a neighborhood like Midtown where there will be people who actively dislike you because you proclaim the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, we start feeling this anxiety because our, our capacity, our capability is really, really low and our calling is really, really high. And the gap in between the two, that's our angst. That's our anxiety. That's our guilt and, and shame of, of all the things we haven't done and all the things we can't do to measure up. And we're overwhelmed and we're stressed and we're tired and we're fearful. 
because we don't know how to bridge that gap. And what I want to propose to us this morning is, is that that gap exists in our hearts. That gap exists in our minds and in our emotions because the story of Leonidas and those like him has seeped into our brains. That without thinking about it, we have immediately assumed that being capable is better than, than being incapable. That being strong is better than being weak. That having capacity is better than being at our wit's end. But when God comes to Gideon in verse 2 of our passage, he said, God has a fear. And it's not that the threat of the Midianites is too much. His fear is not that that Gideon's capacity is too little. His fear is, is that Gideon would get sucked into the lie that he was in control. That God would use the capable ones to work out his mission in the world rather than simply inviting Gideon to show up. You see, we're paralyzed to show up for what God has called us to do in the world because we think we're the ones who are supposed to save the day. We think we're, we, and the strength of our army is what will bring about uh, the comfort and the care of the orphans. We think that it is our intellect and our uh, our persuasiveness that will bring people into knowing the the love of Jesus, and that's just not the case. God comes to Gideon, and he's not asking Gideon to solve the problem. He's asking Gideon to show up while God solves the problem. He's not asking Gideon to be the the top chef of the restaurant. He's asking Gideon to to be the busboy who sets the tables. He's not asking Gideon to to stand up in front of the crowds and and woo and amaze them with his charm. He's asking Gideon to be the stagehand on the play uh, of his, the unfolding drama of his salvation. Do you see that? Do you see how if, if, if we could see the world as God sees it, that it's not our capability that saves us, but God's capability, then we might be able to show up, to show up tired, to show up weak, to show up, as we'll see later, scared. Because it is not our capability, but God's capability that brings salvation. The second thing we see in Gideon's life, though, is not just that he's free to show up, freed from the paralysis of, of angst, but that he's free to lose his resources. He's free to lose his resources. Because if you're going to try and tackle uh, or show up for any of the things I mentioned before, any of those things where the the calling is too high, you're going to have a, a number of fears, and fear of your own inadequacy is just one of them. I think there's another one, and it's this. You don't know where God's taking you. You don't know what God's going to ask of you if you show up to the calling that he gives. Because you look at the story of Gideon and, and you see uh, what happens to him. Or Gideon shows up as God has invited him to, but God immediately begins to remove the very resources he needs to do the task he was called to. Right? So picture Gideon. He's been called by God to assemble an army. Check. He's done it. 
He's got 32,000 soldiers. It's not nearly enough to, to, to pull off the kind of, of endeavor that God has asked him to do. He's vastly outnumbered, but he's holding on to the faith that, that God is going to bring the fruit. But he can look at those 32,000 and he goes, okay, I'm not by myself, right? In fact, some of these guys are probably pretty good with this sword. Some of these guys are, are, are going to be a force to reckon with. He starts thinking, I, maybe, just maybe, we have a fighting chance in this war. And the very first thing God does once he's assembled his, his armies, he goes in verse 2, the people with you are too many. We've got to cut it down. We've got we to take away some of these, this security blanket that you have. And so he goes uh, from 30, uh, well, yes, from 32,000 people to 10,000 soldiers with him. And you can imagine Gideon's heart's beating pretty fast, right? He looks out at this measly 10,000 soldiers with him, and the stakes and the, the threat has only grown. And then in verse 4, God says, the people with you are still too many. Let's cut this down. And so he takes them down to the river, and, and God has his own little test of how he divides them up. But if you're Gideon, given, being given an impossible task, a task that you are nowhere near capable of doing, God then begins to pare away the resources that you need for that task. How are you feeling? You and I look at Gideon, and, and if we're honest, that's a pretty frightening thing to see. Because we can't imagine what would happen in our lives. And here's why. Because subconsciously, we continue to believe this, uh, this lie that our capability controls our outcomes. We continue to suffer under our Leonidas syndromes, and we think, if I lose those resources, how will I get the job done? If I lose those resources, what's my plan B? What's my extraction plan? What will be left of me at the end? I don't know what resources you have. I don't know what God's called you to, and I don't know the way that He will work on your heart. But I can give you one example. When Whitney and I were... Um, leaving Bible college, and we were uh, very much thinking that we were capable and in control of our lives. And we began looking for ministry jobs in churches. And um, then, as in now, the, one of the greatest resources in our lives is that God has given us uh, these incredible families. We have parents who, who love us and, and cheer for us and pray for us, right? We have siblings who, um, who operate and, 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 and love on us and want to be near us. We have incredible families to be a part of. And in our brains, we think, well, God, you gave us these families, and that's such a good, sweet gift, and that's exactly the kind of support system we need if we're going to, to, to live and survive, much less be in ministry. And so when we started trying to like, look for churches that we would be willing to go to, uh, the circle, the, the, the radius of that, uh, the geographic region we were willing to look at was um, a dot on a map. It wasn't a circle, it was, it was a dot, right? 
It was Peoria, Illinois, where both of our families, our extended families, our grandparents, my great-grandparents at the time lived. Because that was the place where we had support. That was, the, that was the place that if things went south, we had connections, we had resources, we had love and encouragement. And as that, uh, that idea that we would live in Peoria as adults got stripped away from us, we brought in the circle just a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And we thought, could we, could we be an hour away from our family, right? Then they were, they're not quite there or quite for us in, in the same way, but... But, but maybe that would still be enough. And we thought, what about if we were three hours away? And somebody at, at the school at the time, he counseled us to, you know, to draw like priority zones on a map of where we thought we uh, would want to, to live and work and, and, and minister in. The long story short is, is that by the time we ended up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, we ended up I looked at that piece of paper that we had drawn, and on the farthest circle, the, the biggest circle that I thought we could possibly survive as a family, the biggest circle that I thought we could possibly uh, live and, and, and operate in healthy, just outside of that line, was Bowling Green, Kentucky, where we, where we ended up um, beginning our ministry. And I don't know why God does it. I mean, I can see in Gideon why he be, that he's, he's trying to, to, to do this heart surgery, right? To pull away those resources that Gideon is, is prone to lean on. To pull away the, the kinds of things that give him a, a false sense of security. The kinds of things that makes him feel like he's in control. But I don't know what that's going to look like for you. I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but I, I, I would guess that there are some resources in your life that if you begin to show up in God's plan for the world are going to be separated from you. Maybe they're family like mine. Maybe it's your title or your rep reputation. Maybe it's the hours of your day, the very time that you have and, and that you think you don't have nearly enough to share with other people. Maybe it's this notion, uh, a feeling of safety in the neighborhood that you live in. Maybe it's the money, the, 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 the actual means to do and to move and to operate in the circles that, that you feel God has called you to. I don't know how God will do it, but the only way that you will show up, the only way that your heart will be okay is if your notion of control, your notion of capability begins to be broken and begins to crumble. That your security, that your future is okay, not because your own hand can save you, but because of God's. God frees us from the, the tyranny of our resources, but he also frees us for this. He frees us to be afraid. He frees us to be afraid. We live in a world where it's, it's not usually okay to be afraid, is it? It's not okay to be weak. We live in a world that is shaped and formed in, by our Leonidas syndrome, right? Or our imaginations are, 
are, are, are manipulated into thinking that if we are going to be uh, a good person or a good Christian, then we must be strong. And this is true in the church, even outside of the church, because then what we do is we replace people who have material strength or physical strength, like Leonidas, and we replace them with people who are, are strong in faith. And we take that to mean the people who, who seem sto- stoic, the people who seem to be in control, the people who, who seem calm in the midst of the storm, right? The people who can't be rattled. And we think, oh, if only I was strong in my faith like Gideon, then I would be okay. But when God shows up in Gideon's life, when God calls Gideon, we begin to we see something very different happening because Gideon is not immovable in his emotions. Gideon is not unrattled. He is very, very much rattled. He, the story begins, Gideon's hiding in a cave. And when God's messenger shows up, he's utterly terrified. Gideon asks God three different times, like, are, are you sure you want me to do this? Like, can you do it? Let's do a little test. I'll put the fleece on the ground, and you make the fleece wet and the ground dry, and then we'll reverse it. And then, you know, we'll, we, he keeps going through these cycles. He shows up, and, and, and the first thing God asks him to do, he, he does in the middle of the night because he's so scared of what his family will think if they knew he was the one who tore down the, the altar to Baal. Gideon is a fearful person. But what God does when he has a fearful servant is he does not come to Gideon and say, you don't have strong enough faith. You didn't make the cut. What he, he doesn't say that, does he? He says to Gideon, he says uh, in verse 9, he says, go down to the camp. And then verse 10, he provides this provision. But if you are afraid to go down... If you are terrified of what I'm asking you to do, let me offer you this. Take your servant to strengthen numbers, right? Go down to the camp and, and just listen. Just see what's going on in the camp. We tend to think that God thinks that we're bad Christians or that we're unfaithful if tears and trembling mark our response to God's call. But I think it's actually the exact opposite. God assumes Gideon is fearful. God assumes that Gideon is trembling. Why? Because Gideon is weak. Gideon is inadequate for the task God has called him to. Gideon does not have the strength. He does not have the capacity. He does not have the capability to do what God has asked him to do. In fact, uh, I would argue that that's exactly what the Christian life is. The Christian life is to, be, to, to, to show up to that and where it's not just situations where you feel weak, but situations where you are weak. What would it look like if we believe that? What would it look like if we had a church where we weren't afraid to cry in front of one another. You know, when you're sitting with somebody and, and they're going through a, a really hard decision or, or they're processing a really hard loss, 
and they're trying to, to, to understand what God is doing in the world, and, and, and maybe that's you, and, and, and the tears begin to flow, and you don't control it, and what's the first thing you say? You say, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm crying. I'm sorry that I'm weak. But what about if we were a church that assumed that following Jesus in this world is going to put you in times and positions and relationships that you are not capable of bearing on your own? What about if we assumed that following Jesus would make us terrified? I think we'd be a church that cries. I said this in the first service because uh, my junior high daughter was in here, but I, I anticipated that she would respond to this after this point in the sermon, that when I get home, she would say, yeah, but dad, you never cry. And she's right. Not that I never cry. I do. But she's right to point out a hypocrisy in me, right? We tend to think that the people who don't cry are the strong ones, but maybe it's more likely that they're the ones with the dense heads who don't see the problem, Maybe it's my hard heart that still, even when, when I'm in a tough spot, I, I still think there's some way that I can get control. There's some way that I can have resources. There's some way that I can still be capable. Maybe if we understood what God was up to, we would expect to cry. We would be free to be afraid because we are not enough and we aren't supposed to be. Lastly, let me do this quickly. We'd be free to be comforted. If we could, could root out this sickness in our head that distorts us to think that power and control are what will bring about God's kingdom. If we could, could root out the idea that capability is what is necessary for the world, then we would be a people who, while we are afraid are able to be comforted. It's because, you see, there's this thing that happens in our, in our lives where we become, uh, we become people who we just we recognize our inadequacy. We recognize our fear. And, and we just think, well, that's just the way it is. Life is hard, and it only gets worse from here, right? Like, life is hard, and, and then you die. And you will hear that expression. No, you'll hear that expression so much that 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 sentiment. I'm sorry, not that expression. That sentiment in the church as much outside of it. That this life is just to suffer and and to to groan until Jesus comes again, and then we escape to heaven. But God does not leave Gideon alone in his fear. He comforts him. And because Gideon is willing to be less capable, is willing to be afraid, he is able to be comforted. You see what happens in uh, verse 13. Gideon uh, takes God up on his offer, right? His test. Go down to the camp. Go and just go see what's happening down there. And when Gideon gets down to that camp, he hears, oh, overhears a conversation, but what's apparent to him as he overhears this conversation is that God is not sending him into uh, the middle of a war zone alone. 
That God is not sending him into hostile territory with no hope of survival. That God is not abandoning him to his weakness. What he finds when he gets to the camp is this evidence that God is already there. That the Midianite army is already afraid of what God is about to do in their midst. Gideon comes down, and rather than being the the lone wolf who's been cut off from resources, rather than being the fearful one who can't hold his spear, rather than being the one whose, whose capability is not nearly enough for the task, he sees that God has already won the battle. The battle uh, of the Midianites' minds and hearts has already, been run, has already been won. The Gideonites are already poised to run away in fear. What Gideon gets by the mercy of God is the comfort of knowing the end, of knowing the result, of seeing God's hand actively at work in his world. And it makes all the difference. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He worshiped and he returned to the camp and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. I bring this up because I think the the point of the story of Gideon, the takeaway for us this morning to people who are conditioned to think of our world in terms of power and capability and strength, who, who are prone to, to long for a Leonidas-type uh, ability to control our world, is this, that God has won the battle. That God uh, takes Gideon in his fear and in his trembling, he takes him down to the camp and he says, take a look and see. The battle's already been won. And for you and I who have been called to participate in the kingdom of God with the ministry to the, the, the weak and, and the poor and the vulnerable, to, to, to show up to situations that are impossible, God has showed us already that He goes before us. Because the kingdom of God is not won because of our capability or our strength. The kingdom is won because of what God's hand has done, preeminently in the person of Jesus Christ. That when God takes us down to the camp, when he comes down and he shows us that, that, that big terrifying calling that he has put on our life, what we will see is, is that in Jesus' death and in his resurrection and then in the promise of his return, that battle... Whatever it is that God has called you to, that battle has already been won by the strength of God's hand. It doesn't mean that it's not terrifying to follow him into that battle. It doesn't mean that there's not tears and fear and setbacks. In fact, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him, the scripture says, to a cross, to a place where our fears and loss and death Uh, are more than we can handle. But it is at that place that we can't handle that we find Jesus waiting because he's already there. He's there in the very places we feared he would abandon us. 
He's there with the riches of goodness that we uh, could never imagine losing. He's there with a hand to wipe every tear from our eyes. We can be comforted, though our capability is way down here, and God's calling is way up here because God wins the battle. It is by God's hand that we have a future, and that is really, really good news. Pray with me. Father, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. So, God, we pray that uh, as terrifying as it may be in times and seasons to follow you, that we can be comforted to know that you are with us. Lead us and guide us and hold us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.